0: I definitely knew before that I was always felt attracted to boys and I always you know I, I had crushes on like I, I always had crushes on like the boy teachers at school I saw the boy teachers were cute you know it wasn't the girl I was like I don't get that there was a female PE teacher that all my friends were like you know when I was like in year 6, 10 or 11 they're like oh you know she's so hot and I was like I you know you guys are all looking at the wrong person <laughs> 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 so yeah I think a bit earlier
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And this week's guest is Alex Leon. Alex is an Australian writer and campaigner, and what sparked my interest in him was one of his tweets from earlier this year, which I have here and I will read to you now Queer people don't grow up as ourselves. We grow up playing a version of ourselves that sacrifices authenticity to minimise humiliation and prejudice. The massive task of our adult lives is to unpick which parts of ourselves are truly us and which parts we've created to protect us. I remember reading it and thinking that was such an astute insight and I immediately retweeted it and I bookmarked it so I wouldn't lose it. It clearly resonated deeply, not just with me, but with a whole lot of people as it quickly went viral. It garnered over 200,000 likes and 50,000 retweets. Alex is a prominent queer activist in London and he works for an LGBTQ charity. He's also a really talented writer and has written for The Guardian and the BBC. I think his writing is incredible. So if you have time, definitely do look it up. The interview was recorded during lockdown, so it was done remotely, of course. Alex was in London and I was in my makeshift studio, which I've assembled myself in my very small walking wardrobe at my home outside Dublin. The sound won't be as good as if we were both in the same room, there is a bit of a delay, but it should still be pretty decent. We chatted about how he struggled to accept his sexuality, his early crushes on male school teachers, coming out to his parents and why it took some time for his father to be accepting, his honest thoughts on racism within the gay community. We also bonded over our many gay crushes on Australian soap stars, and we chatted about lots of other things also. You can get in touch with me by emailing johnny at i'mcomingoutpod.com and tweet me at i'mcomingoutpod. I don't have many people to use as sounding boards around me, unfortunately. So if you have any suggestions for guests or if there's anything you think I could do to improve the podcast, please do get in touch. Please tweet me or email me as I genuinely would love to hear your feedback. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello Alex and welcome to my podcast. Thanks for doing the interview. No
0: worries, Johnny. I'm really happy to be here. It's a lovely, sunny uh, London day, so it's kind of out of the ordinary. What's it like over in Ireland?
1: Um, it's pretty sunny but it's a bit cold outside but um, I'm actually I'm sat here in a very very I just it just dawned on me how ironic I'm here in a closet I'm doing a podcast about coming out of the closet whilst sat in a very very small closet so it's um, a yeah, very <laughs> weird surroundings at the moment but um, how are you doing considering we're living in such weird strange and unsettling times
0: You know what? I'm doing okay. I feel like people in this country uh, have a real tendency to to ask each other how they're doing, and everyone just says, good. It's a very kind of British, you know, keep calm and carry on sort of thing, but I am not British. I'm okay. I would say I'm okay. You know, okay as one can be during a global pandemic, right? You know, the world has turned upside down, but I'm surviving, and I wouldn't say I'm thriving just yet, but I'm certainly surviving, and I think that's something to celebrate.
1: Cool. And you're doing okay. You haven't had any symptoms. You haven't. Nobody close to you has caught the virus or anything like that.
0: No, I'm very, very lucky. I'm very grateful that um, I'm very safe, and everyone around me has been really safe and really well. So I'm very privileged and lucky in that respect, for sure.
1: Cool. And uh, well, I'm really lucky because I'm out in in um, the countryside at the moment. So it must be really tough for people who are cooped up in cities and who don't have much green area. How are you handling that at the moment?
0: I'm doing okay, you know, I, um, I've gotten into running, so I've been going down for runs around the park that's kind of close to my house. Of course, it's difficult because there have been, especially weekends where everyone goes out to the park and sort of flouts the yes. social distancing rules, but I've been trying my best to get out every day, to be honest. I think it's so, like exercise is one of those things that's so important, even if it's just a walk.
1: The exercise really perks up your mood, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, massively. I mean, it just gets endorphins, you know, around your body yeah. and it. I think sometimes just a change of scene is good as well. Like if you're stuck inside all day, just going for a walk, even if you don't get past, like just being outside and being somewhere that's not your house is, is good for you. It's good for the soul.
1: Yeah, fresh air and nature perks up your mood. I think there was a certain park in East London that was trending on Twitter last weekend because there were so many people out and so many people flouting the rules. Did you see that? Oh, it might
0: have been, I don't know if it was London Fields, but I walked through London Fields. I went for a big, long walk. I think it was last weekend or the weekend before. And, I mean, as we say in Australia, people were just taking the piss. Like, it was really... It was really <laughs> you say that over here, too. It to was you, really yeah. distracting your, uh... Oh, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, I'm claiming it for Australia. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, people have been... I mean, I on one hand, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I do get the it is really difficult not being able to see your friends or being able to be around your friends. But at the end of the day, it's about like collective responsibility. And, you know, if you take any time to learn about the way that this disease ravages people and particularly old people and particularly uh, black black and brown people, you know, for me, that's enough to just go, I'm, I'm not taking that risk. And I'm not, I don't want anyone else to, you know, be put in danger because of my risk taking. It just doesn't feel
1: worth it. It's an, I think I read that in one of the papers at the weekend that black and brown people are four times more likely to contract the illness.
0: Yeah, so it's black men who I think are four times more likely to contract it uh, than yeah. white people. And then black and brown people, Or you know, people use the term BAME in this country, which I don't particularly like, which stands for black, Asian and minority ethnic. But, yeah. you know, people who are black and brown are disproportionately dying from the virus as well. So I think in light of that, to me, it's like, well, I'm staying inside, both for my own protection, but also for the protection of my community and my friends and people in my life that, you know, happen to be black and brown. Like, it's not, it's just, it's, yeah, it's really upsetting, actually. And I don't also feel like much is being done at the moment. There's been a big call from government here to conduct an inquiry on what's going on, but we're yet to hear back. So we'll see what happens there, what can be done.
1: But yeah, I don't think it's dawned on any of us yet just yeah. the enormity of what has happened. And we, we're going to be feeling the, the after effects of it for years and years to come.
0: Yeah, massively. I think one of the things that everyone's so concerned about, certainly in this country at the moment is, you know, what are the very short term, I mean, like, when does lockdown end? When can we go outside more? And all these things are important. And I understand yeah. why people feel strongly about them. But I absolutely agree with you, you know, we don't have a good sense yet of what the longer term, effects both on physical and mental health will be. And I think that's where that's where I start to worry because I really think that we're going to see, certainly from a mental health perspective, a real uptick in in people experiencing poor mental health. Um, and even trying to get back to normal life. I mean, it's going to be, I think, very difficult for people to spring back into this kind of new normal. You know, when you go back to the office, do you have to stay socially distant to your colleagues? Can you, you know, can you commute and not use public transport?
1: Yeah, we're going back to a, a very a whole different world, actually, after this. No, it is important to be hopeful, as you said. But yeah, there is um, there is going to be some worrying times ahead. Alex, so let's start the let's start with a tweet of yours, which went viral back in January. And that was what piqued my interest in you, first of all. So I'm just going to read it out to you now. So it, I think it got over 200,000 likes It went viral queer people don't grow up as ourselves we grow up playing a version of ourselves that sacrifices authenticity to minimize humiliation and prejudice the massive task of our adult life is to unpick which parts of ourselves are truly us and which parts we've created to protect us so why do you think that that tweet resonated so deeply with so many people
0: Cause that's such a hard question I mean it's it really came as a shock to me when the tweet took off I I mean I tweeted it for a reason right I didn't I didn't tweet it thinking that it wasn't important or that it wasn't interesting but it was kind of something which had come out of I guess a diary entry in a way I'd been writing a lot because I'd been back in Australia over the Christmas break and just writing and reflecting a lot on sort of where I was at in my life and how I'd come to sort of where I was and all these types of things and it's sort of, you know, sometimes when you're when you're writing or when you're creating or when you're, you know, being creative, these things kind of just pour out of you. And it was something that kind of poured out of me, this kind of understanding that I was like, oh, wait a second, you know, I've been performing for a really long time. And I actually didn't get a chance to grow up as myself, you know, from, from my earliest memories, I grew up performing because I knew that the person that I was wasn't going to be seen as acceptable or as worthy of celebration. I think the reason that it blew up, I mean, first of all, the, the trajectory of it blowing up is that it blew up sort of within the LGBT community, which is the community that it was aimed at and speaking to. Yeah. But then it kind of blew up outside of that. And I think the reason is that everyone to some extent, I mean, this is, I think it's particularly relevant to queer people, but everyone to some extent has had that experience of feeling like they have to perform a different version of themselves in order to fit in. You know, we all grow up feeling like we're misfits in some way. Um, and we all feel like it's, it was basically, I think for a lot of people a, a contemplation or a meditation on having to fit a mold to be more kind of acceptable to society and everyone on some level can appreciate or understand that. And I think that's what led it to, you know, going all over the place and, you know, being on TV and the celebrities sharing. And I mean, it was crazy. It was a really mental, <laughs> uh, and strange thing to go through, but. I think it just, I think it reminded us, I think it showed that we all have a kind of common humanity, right? And that everyone to some extent feels like they have to change who they are in order to be accepted. And my hope is that the tweet gave people a moment of pause to just reflect on the fact that it's actually okay to reconnect with that authenticity. And it's actually really important to reconnect with that authenticity and to remind yourself of who you are outside of society's gaze and be willing and courageous enough to connect with that person. So it's really, really hard
1: work. And how about you now? Do you still feel that you're performing sometimes in some areas of your life? Or do you feel like you're, I'm going to sound a bit Oprah now, but do you feel like you're closer to your true self?
0: No, I think, to be honest, I think the concept of the authentic self is in some ways flawed, even though it's kind of the basis of, of you know, this series of tweets and the essay that subsequently kind of came as out as a result of those tweets as well you know, authenticity as a concept is, it's a bit wooly. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily straightforward. I think in some ways it's normal to perform different versions of yourself, because I mean, this is getting a bit philosophical, but you could say, okay, what is your authentic self? Is your authentic self the person that you are around your friends? Is your authentic self the person you are around your family? Is your authentic self the person that you are without any other people? Do you need other people in order to be able to describe who yourself is? Like, it's it's a really difficult and kind of it's almost like a philosophical question. But I would say that I do perform. I think we have to perform in society. I think that's part of being human and existing in society in the way that we've built it. But I try to be cognizant of the fact that I'm performing. And I try to ensure that my performances, quote unquote, aren't leaps and bounds away from my values and my core beliefs. But as long as you feel like that person is, I guess, adhering to your core values, even if your behavior changes, I think that's what's most important. And I don't think that we should be like, uh, what's the word? I don't think we should be relegating performance as a necessarily bad thing. I think in the context of growing up and being told that the person that you are isn't correct and that you should change and therefore wanting to perform, that's a slightly different story. And that's the basis of those. You know, that's where those tweets come from.
1: You mentioned there about growing up. You grew up in Australia. And what was Mm -hmm. your awareness of homosexuality when you were younger?
0: Um, I don't, you know, I really, I struggle to recall ever seeing anyone gay on TV or in the radio or in my life. The very few memories that I can recall are usually disparaging ones. You know, people that were colleagues or friends of friends of my parents that they didn't really associate with or people on TV who were the butt of the joke. Um, And I think growing up for me, gayness, you know, actually it wasn't necessarily gayness. It was kind of more femininity. I think that before I understood what being gay was in, in practice, which is essentially, you know, being attracted to the same sex or the same gender, I knew that feminine behaviour in men or in boys was wrong, and that's how I grappled with my own gayness, right? Because before I knew I was gay, I knew that I was feminine, and so growing up in Australia in you know the 90s, all I knew was that that was bad, and that was that was what shaped my views around homosexuality. When I started to realise, when I started to get teased, and people started to associate my behaviour as a kind of femme boy with being gay, obviously, in my mind, I created a, connect, a negative connection between those two. I was like, okay, my behavior as being effeminate means that I'm gay, and therefore being gay is bad because I'm being teased for that behavior, right? And so it was almost like inbuilt to me before I even realized that I was gay and that I you know, was attracted to, to, to guys. It was built into me that that was bad and that, that was wrong. And that was a very pervasive thought for me throughout all of my childhood and most of my adolescence.
1: Uh, sorry, what age were you when that femme shaming started?
0: Oh gosh, I mean honestly, like five six
1: yeah, yeah. i
0: was when i when i was when i mean I was five, I was at school I was always I always wanted to hang out with the girls. I just wasn't interested in hanging out with the boys, and it's i I even remember you know, my mum was reminding me that um my kindergarten teacher even was concerned about it, you know, she said, oh, he's too sensitive, he spends too much time with the girls." So, you know, even the adults in my life at five years old were like, this is not right, this is wrong. But yeah, I mean, it's so it's such an interesting thing because it wasn't like I was five and I was like, I'm gay. It was just that I wasn't interested in the things that other boys are interested in. And just that alone was enough for the adults in my life to just find cause for concern and try to change me. A child at five years old, it's, it's quite, I looking back, I find it sometimes quite, shocking that we impose these really binary understandings of what
1: how a boy yeah. or how
0: a girl should act or should feel but you know we do it because that's what society tells us is right or did tell us is right I hope it's changing.
1: <laughs> no, it's sad that you were receiving that sort of shaming from the adults around you it wasn't just the you know just children mm. and so were do you, were you the subject of much homophobic bullying in school as well?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I don't think there's many uh, gay men or even queer people out there that haven't experienced it on some level. But yeah, certainly all the way through, I think primary school was slightly easier for me, I think, because it just, it, it was always there, but it wasn't kind of a big talking point. It was around like adolescence and high school where, you know, people start to become sexually active and people become, I think, a lot more aware of attraction and romance and sexuality that it became more and more the kind of subjective or I became more and more the subjective ridicule or the of the objective ridicule. I, I always get expressions wrong. The subject, the object it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but yeah, no, certainly during my, during my adolescence and during, you know, when I was a teenager, it was, um yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty nonstop and there weren't many kids in my entire school who, well, there was no kids who were openly gay and there was no, there was very few kids. I was one of maybe two or three who were, In any way, like obviously effeminate, or could be seen or coded and therefore teased as gay. So we were kind of in a very small minority, and we all kind of didn't associate with each other because we knew that it made us more of a target. Yeah,
1: that puts more emphasis on it than if you're friends with the other gay kids, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. It kind of makes life slightly harder for you.
1: Yeah, no, our brains are so plastic during that, you know, our development years. Yeah, yeah, and you know, all that shaming it does lead to mental health problems further down the road doesn't it
0: yeah absolutely I mean I think I think many uh I mean I think the tweets we were just talking about before I mean I think they are sort of in part informed by my own my own struggles with mental health because I think you know if you're teased for being something as a teenager in your adult life you know you're you've ingrained this idea of you've started to you've allowed this idea to sink in that that thing is wrong and so so many of us spend so much time trying to run away from that part of ourselves because we see it as an opportunity for ridicule or an opportunity for teasing or an opportunity for bullying or discrimination or prejudice like the tweets say. So we run away from it, right? And so it's, I guess, that kind of idea of bringing yourself back to authenticity is, started, is sort of staring that in the face and being like, no, that is who I am. And actually, it's really wonderful about that's who I am. And it's really okay that's who I am. Uh, and that's hard
1: yeah once like that that's where the programming that's where the foundations are laid so it kind of it really follows you through life it's really really hard to to shake it off years and years later totally did you know at that time that you were gay or were you still grappling with it during your adolescence
0: no i knew i mean it's it, i mean it's the semantics of the word no i mean it's so hard because i yeah. knew fundamentally i knew but i i think sometimes we underestimate how strong or how how well human beings are, or how good human beings are, deceiving themselves, right? So even though I knew in my core, I never allowed myself to really grapple with it and to really even think about it in any kind of productive or practical way. I just knew, and as when it arose in my life, whether it was you know a crush on a boy or whatever, I just pushed it away. So I knew, but I didn't like know if that makes if that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I it's hadn't allowed myself way. to yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. You you know, but you're not you're not dealing with it. You're not thinking about it. You're not allowing yourself to consider it thoughtfully in any way. It's just like this background. It felt like an irritating background thing that I had to just keep on more and more aggressively pushing into the recesses of my mind until I came out.
1: So you kind of subconsciously knew from your early adolescence, would you say?
0: I would say earlier. I think I knew when I was like eight or nine. OK, yeah. But i I just I simply pushed it away again i mean I mean I think it gets harder for a lot of people around adolescents because you know that's when the hormones are rushing around yeah <laughs> and you're having your you know sexual awakening quote unquote but I definitely knew before that I was always I felt attracted to boys, and I always you know I, I had crushes on like i I always had crushes on like the boy teachers at school, I thought the boy okay. teachers were cute, you know it wasn't the girl I was like I don't get the there was a female p e teacher that all my friends were like you know when I was like eight six, ten, or yeah. eleven like oh you know she's so hot and i was like i you know you guys are all looking at the wrong person <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i think a bit earlier
1: and were you accepting of it yourself or did you fight against it because there's a lot of people i talked to that I, I didn't have any problem with it at all when i realized i was gay it was more the worry about how everyone else was going to respond so how was that for you
0: god that's a great question i think i for me honestly i did not grapple with it in a thoughtful way and i did not allow myself to consider it until the day that i came out it was very quick like i was really it all sort of spilled out and it happened all within a day and i told everyone that was important to me on that day it just kind of i often think that i kind of reached a threshold of like i couldn't ignore it anymore i couldn't push it i'd so aggressively pushed away this thought that i might be gay for such a long time That it kind of sprang back with such an immense force that i was just completely caught up in it and i couldn't resist it anymore but no i was deeply i mean i really did not want to be gay i did not want to i really hoped and i prayed and i dreamed that i would wake up and it would all be over i really wanted to be attracted to women because i wanted to get married and i wanted to have children and i wanted it you know i wanted this life that I guess, my parents and sort of sold to me by virtue of existing, but also that have been sold to me through, you know, media and through culture and through all the other people in my life. I mean, this is a bit morbid, but it's genuinely the way that I felt at the time. I was like, either I live my life with a woman, just pushing away these feelings, have children and live that life, or I, sh- I should cease to exist. I did not see like a third path. It wasn't something that was that was available to me in my understanding of the world.
1: I'm so sorry to hear that. And did you have anybody at the time at all that you could open up to about it, or was that something you had to keep to yourself? No,
0: I did. Like, I mean, I, I, there was there were definitely people who, had I felt able to talk to them about it, would have been receptive and would have been accepting. But no, I always kept it to myself. I always kept it inside until the day that I came out because I just it, it felt shameful, right? It's you know, and that's. The experience for a lot of people is it felt like something that I should be ashamed about and I couldn't quite shake that feeling and so to disclose it to someone else felt like the ultimate act of acknowledging that, acknowledging that shame I guess or kind of, what's the word, kind of felt like I was indulging that shame and I didn't like the feeling, I didn't like the feeling of having to kind of be ashamed of who I was so no I didn't, I really didn't. I, looking back I, I mean I don't have any regrets but I really wish I had actually. I think I think it would have been really helpful if I'd felt able to do so.
1: And so when did you come out? Was that after you'd left high school?
0: Yeah, I came out when I was at university. So I came out when I was 21. So it was post high school. I think I'd been in uni for a couple of years.
1: Same age as me. Really? Yeah, I was 21 as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: wow. I find that a lot of people in my life came out a lot earlier than that. But I thought that that was, I don't think of that, of that as late, but a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, but I guess people grow up in different scenarios, don't they, with different yeah. people, and everyone grapples with it differently. Yeah, so I was at uni, I was, um, I was studying languages. I was studying French, and this is, this is relevant to the story. Don't worry, I'm not just kind of bragging about my language skills. no, no, no it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but I was studying French, I was studying languages, and um, we had an assignment where I was researching this particular uh, French-Canadian filmmaker called Xavier Dolan, and he was like a young, gay, very successful filmmaker who would, I think at the time he'd released, or maybe, uh, maybe it had just been released, I think, um, a sort of biopic about him and his mother's relationship. And I was doing some research on that for a particular project. And I was, you know, you know what uni is like, I was kind of stressed and the, the, the project was due in a couple of days. And I was up yeah. really late at night, like one in the morning, uh, one or two in the morning researching this. And I was watching YouTube interviews with him. And there was a particular interview where he was being asked by a journalist when he first realized he was gay. And he said, I didn't ever realize I always knew. It was just this, you know, it was just an, a case of allowing myself to acknowledge yeah. what I already knew. And I didn't think anything of it, really. I didn't think, oh wow, Eureka, like that was profound. I just sort of, you know, listened to it like, oh, okay, whatever. Close the laptop, put the laptop uh, down and thought, okay, it's time to go to bed. And as I lay in bed, just for the first time, something about that interaction between a journalist and this particular filmmaker, talking about him always knowing, I was just like, oh, that's me. Like, that is me. And I know, and I need to seriously think about whether I can just tell everyone in my life and get this over and done with and maybe live a better life. And I don't know, I really don't know, like, it was like a perfect storm. I don't know what happened. I don't know, you know, it felt like it was the interview that kind of allowed me to have that thought. But I guess it just dawned on me that I could just take the risk and I could just tell everyone in my life and just see what happened. And so I lay in bed. It was like two in the morning. By this point, I was determined to tell my parents the next morning, but I was scared that if I fell asleep the next morning, I would not do it. So I ended up lying in bed all night. I set up. I pulled like an all nighter, <laughs> thinking about exactly okay. how I was going to do it. And then around six or seven in the morning, my dad went up to go to the gym and I kind of strategically let him go. I thought I'm going to tell him after my mom because I knew he would be a slightly more difficult um, case, which was true. And I just walked to my mom's bedroom, heard my dad go to the gym. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go around the corner. I'm going to go into my mom's room. And I'm just going to say to her, I'm gay. And I walked into the room and I stood there and she was kind of still asleep. And I was like, hey, hey. And she's like, oh, hey, you know, what's going on? And I said, oh, I need to tell you something. okay so she kind of moved over and i sat in bed with her and i said i haven't been honest with you about something and she said okay and then i couldn't you know so many of us are dealing with such immense shame around our sexuality or our gender identity when we come out and i couldn't bring myself to use the word gay in response in you know in relation to myself i couldn't say i'm gay i just couldn't it couldn't the words could not come out of my mouth so instead i said i've not been honest with you about something and she said okay then I fell apart crying, <laughs> like just completely lost it and cried for a good 10 minutes before I hadn't even told her. And so obviously she was a bit panicked. She thought, you know, later she told me she thought I'd, you know, had murdered someone or you know, started doing really bad. And then I said to her, I have been honest with you about my sexuality. And she said, oh, okay. And to be honest, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better reaction. She was like, that's absolutely. Absolutely God. fine. Like, and you know, asked a bunch of questions and did the kind of thing which I think a lot of parents do, and it's not always the best line of questioning. But they sort of said, "Are you sure? How do you know?" Which was really hard for me to explain. I was just like, "Well, I just do." And yes, I am sure. So we got that over and done with. She was very supportive and and um God, God. and very kind. Then my dad came back from from the gym. Now, my dad is Sri Lankan. He grew up in Sri Lanka and in India. And I think he, well, I think I know that he has a much more traditional understanding of sexuality and gender and, you know, the role of men and women. So I knew that he was going to be slightly more of a difficult case. And he was. To be fair to him, he, I told him, I said the exact same thing. And he said, okay, well, I have to, I have to accept your choices and I have to support you. And then he walked away and then he didn't speak to me for about two months <laughs> <Really? laughs> Wow. yeah I mean he was just grappling with it and actually I have to say I knew that he would come around but he yeah. you know people deal with things in different ways and he just couldn't right. he couldn't be okay with it until he had sat with it for a while and you know we know our parents well right and that's we know how they act yeah. and I knew that that's, that's how he was going to be And then I literally went around that day and told everyone else in my life. (laughs) I just got it all, I ripped it off like a bandaid. I got it all done.
1: And then how did your father's reaction affect you at the time?
0: I mean, it was hard because I obviously was upset by him not having an enormously accepting reaction, but I was also quite, I think he was a person that I was kind of the most, the two people that I was the most worried about at the time were my dad and one of my best friends who is... was a straight man because I felt like they were going to have the most difficulty accepting it the women in my life irrespective of their sexuality I felt more confident that they would be okay even if they had some even if they found it difficult at first I felt like it was less a less threatening concept to them whereas for my dad and for one of my best friends Matt I think I was just concerned that they weren't going to accept me because a lot of, you know, a lot of the homophobic abuse as well that I had grown up with had to come from straight men. You know, it's very rare for women to be the ones that were kind of the instigators of any kind of teasing or bullying. It was always men and it was always straight guys. So, but yeah, I felt, I felt sad, but I, I felt confident enough in our relationship that I knew he would come around and he has, you know, he, he, two months passed He kind of let it go. We didn't really talk about it directly. But over many years, we've kind of come to a much more, a a better understanding. And we're we're able to talk about it kind of more openly. I wouldn't say that he would necessarily want to know the ins and outs of my, like, dating or sex life. But, you know, I don't think either of my parents would really want to know that. So, but yeah, we're in a really comfortable space right now. And I feel very grateful for that. I appreciate a lot of people don't have that.
1: Good. It was just that initial shock, wasn't it? He just needed some time to get used to the idea.
0: Well, I think men of that generation as well, they're not really taught to process their emotion or talk about their feelings. And so a lot of them, I've seen this over and over and over in many uh, men in my life, older men, that they kind of just need to go inward and like just sit with it and maybe be angry and maybe be sad, but sometimes they just need to kind of like sit and process kind of quietly by themselves and then they kind of are a, a, over a longer period of time able to let it go whereas the women in my life have always been a bit more like oh let's talk about our feelings and let's do this and let's that which is always yeah. what I've wanted to do right but there's a lot of men who can't do that even in our generation
1: yeah no that's so true particularly of that older generation i mean they're just the conditioning is so deeply embedded like cannot talk about my emotions cannot show any emotions it's yeah. just there's it's like it's almost like the world has done men such a huge disservice they're like not allowed to be emotional creatures at all and that's that's really sad as well
0: yeah massively we're taught that men have to be strong they have to be strong and they have to be stoic and they have to you know all these kind of you know all these traditional ideals of masculinity they they're massively harmful to women but they're also in some ways massively harmful to men right like yeah men are not given space or time to be vulnerable or to be emotional and that's why we see when you look at kind of mental health statistics among men that so many more men um, sadly commit suicide in women across the world it's yeah. very common.
1: And so your coming out, it, it went well with all of your friends, it was just your dad who was somewhat on the fence Yeah, um, I mean,
0: all the, all of my female friends were like, yeah <laughs> I mean, you right. know, like I think, I think they were shocked and I think it took them time, but I, you know, there wasn't any negativity really from the women in my life Good. One of my, you know, my, 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 my sort of sole straight male friends at the time, Matt, he He was also very good about it and he was very he said something at the time which i found really really comforting and i still think about it i think was actually the perfect response he said well you're not going to be my gay best friend alex you're going to be my best friend alex and you happen to be gay and i found that so profoundly comforting at the time because i was so worried about you know the ability of me being gay changing our relationship and it did and and he was basically saying it won't change your relationship it's something that that is a part of you that doesn't impact on on our friendship and i really really found that to be comforting and lovely and i i actually think it was a brilliant response to someone
1: yeah it's a good way of putting it it doesn't dominate our relationship it doesn't exactly yeah and so um, my favourite question that I, I love asking everybody, I'm trying to make up for all those lost years in the closet when I couldn't speak about boys. <laughs> Who did you fancy growing up? Who were your crushes? So like famous oh and unfamous. So Did you fancy any, uh, was there anyone like in the public eye or did you fancy anyone you went to school with?
0: Oh my God, Johnny, there's too many. No one's ever asked me this question and I'm so delighted <laughs> that I get to uh, to, uh, to respond to it. Okay, so I have I find a massive... this
1: question is just so cathartic to uh, to ask and to yeah, talk about. It. Yeah. No, and I
0: I haven't even really thought about it, but now that you've now that you've asked, I'm like, oh my god, I've not talked about this in a long time, but I had some like obsessive crushes on, on guys growing up. I was really, I don't know if you, I don't know if Neighbours is a thing over in Ireland, but... Oh,
1: um, yeah, it's huge. It. Is it? I was obsessed with Neighbours. I'm showing my age now when I was four and five. Like, I would watch it religiously oh every God. single day when Kylie and Jason were on it. So oh, that yeah, the, that's what I mean yeah i'm i'm older than you but that was what i said on my first day of school of primary school was when am i going to watch neighbors now because i used to watch it on my own every afternoon at like half one on the bbc but i uh, sorry you're telling your story back to you sorry
0: no 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 <laughs> um yeah so i i I, feel, I wasn't like an obsessive watcher of neighbors i mean it was just on it was on when you got back from school it was just around it was on when dinner was being made and there was a character i mean i can't remember what the name of the actor is i can look him up but his, his character's name is Boyd and Boyd Scully, I want to say, and Scully, yeah, I'm pretty sure, and he was like my age at the time, so like kind of 15, 16, and he was just this like, you know, all Australian kind of rugby boy that kind of was constantly shirtless on the show, and I was, okay. I mean, I was obsessed, <laughs> Like I really was obsessed with him. And I mean, it was a secret obsession, right? I couldn't tell anyone, but I used to watch it solely to watch him. I thought he was just the most mm. cute thing ever. And also I think partly he he, he resembled a lot of the boys in my school that I kind of had secret crashes on that I couldn't ever talk about or ever show. And so it was like a, a way of me indulging in that without having to be worried about, you know, someone catching me staring at them or whatever, you know, it was me and the TV. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't think he did anything after Neighbours, you know. I, don't, I don't think he kind of faded into obscurity. He certainly, even in Australia, like, I've not seen him on anything else. I think he did Neighbours and then kind of went back to his normal life. But Boyd, Boyd, I think it was Boyd Scully. Look him up.
1: Neighbours and Home, in a way, they always used to have all the pretty, pretty boys, didn't they? For to, Oh, massively. To draw in the teenage girls and the gay boys. I mean,
0: totally. I, oh, no, I've looked him up. Boyd Hoyland. He wasn't a Scully. Maybe he dated a Scully. Kyle Marsh is the name of the actor, but if you, yeah. you know, just looking, I've just Googled him and just looking at him now, like it's so of the time, like he's got this like early 2000s, 16 year old boy haircut. Like he's wearing the kind of clothes that I used to wear. It was just like a projection of all the kids in my school that I had massive crushes on. God, it's funny, it's such a blast from the past. I was not expecting to be asked about, Boyd Hoyland from (laughs) Neighbours.
1: I'm going to Google him now after this. You should, you should. (laughs) Yeah, Because Home and Away and Neighbours during the 90s in Ireland were huge. They were phenomenally successful. And everybody, I think, watched Neighbours during the 90s. And I actually did Google my Home and Away crushes the other day. But I didn't even know at the time that I was... I was gay. I just thought I I wanted them to be my friend. Like I didn't even realize that's what it was. Oh, really? I was totally in love with them when I was like eight or nine. Yeah, I googled Andrew Hill the other day.
0: Andrew Hill, no, I he don't was know like who that is. Pippa's stepson.
1: And so, who were your other other than Kyle Marsh? Who else?
0: Oh my god, this is so hard. I really have to think. I remember having. I remember having quite a big crush on a guy who was on Big Brother in Australia. I, I, I don't know, for some reason, <laughs> for some reason it was always like Australia. I think I, I think I had to be, I think it was always Australian guys. Like I didn't really connect with, you know. I used to watch like, what did I watch growing up? Oh my god, I forgot what it's called now. What's the, what was the one that had Misha Barton? Um, oh, the OC. The OC, yeah. I was, I, yeah. I used to love the OC, and I definitely. The only kind of non-Australian crush I can think of was I used to really think Seth from The OC was really
1: cute. Oh yeah, I had a huge crush on him for years because he was like nerdy
0: and relatable and inoffensive. You know, he wasn't like that scary kind of hyper masculine. Like they might kind of beat you up. He was like cute, but he was sort of nerdy and geeky. But I was definitely, I definitely had a crush on him. And then there was this guy called Jamie on Big Brother. He actually won that season of Big Brother. And to be honest with you, Johnny, like he wasn't even that attractive. He was just like a meathead, but he was oh, again, <laughs> constantly shirtless. He was just constantly shirtless. And Big Brother was a show that I, you know, it was massive in Australia at the time. Right. And so it was always, always on. And he was just always on and always shirtless. So I was like, okay, well. We're yeah, noticing a pattern there. Passion, <laughs> you have a time. <laughs> well, I mean, it, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, I think to be honest I think it was really yeah those are the kind of guys that were around me and those were the kind of guys that I grew up with and so like those kind of like meatheads I don't know I mean I was actually I wrote a piece a while back I'm not I can't remember if I published it or not about how I think it's quite jarring for a lot of gay boys growing up because often you're bullied by boys who you're attracted to I don't know if you ever have had that experience
1: yes but, yes I did it's the yeah. worst. I mean, it's,
0: it's really hard because it's like yeah. you have this secret desire for them, but they're also being horrible to you. But that doesn't necessarily yeah. stop you feeling that way. And I think that, you know, I mean, that's like good therapy fodder for anyone out there. <laughs> that's a really good thing to talk to a therapist because honestly, I think it's actually a really strange experience to, to live through.
1: So what do you think for you have been some of the long-term effects of growing up gay and being on the receiving end of all that shaming? how do you think that's impacted on who you've become today?
0: So I would say it's had positive and negative impacts yeah. and I don't cause I don't I don't want to be all doom and gloom about it I mean I do think that it's really important to acknowledge that LGBT people are disproportionately at poor risk of mental health and I I really believe that a lot of that comes down to a lot of the experiences that we have as children or as adolescents and the kind of shaming that we experience, as you just mentioned. For me, you know, the process of coming out and the process of finding myself and understanding who I am has been fraught with obstacles and it's been, and some of those obstacles have manifested themselves, you know, through depression or anxiety. And I think that my adult life has been riddled with episodes of feeling depressed or episodes of dealing with quite a lot of anxiety almost directly as a result of some of the experiences I had growing up and the kind of the, the thoughts that I was allowed to develop and, and kind of allowed to sort of fester in my mind that became thoughts that propelled me through my adulthood about myself, you know, thoughts about the world, thoughts about my place in the world, thoughts about my value and my worth. So on that level, it's been quite tough, but I have to say, I, I would not have it any other way because even though there's been so much hardship and so much difficulty, and a lot of soul searching and a lot of pain that's been uncovered. I really feel like having gone through that experience, I'm just a much happier person. I'm a much stronger person. You know, the the tweets we were talking about before, one of the tweets said, you know, that we we have a real privilege of this kind of quite explicit sort of self-discovery. Like it's a very, you know, you, have to, you sort of have to stare yourself in the face and be like, okay, who am I? Like, what am I? You know? Who I represent and and what do I believe and what are my values? you know when you come out it's like you're kind of coming into yourself for the first time, and a lot of people who are straight or cisgender they don't have that in the same way they're not forced to do that in the same way yeah, and so I think that there's a real privilege if you can come out the other end of your coming out experience to to being queer or to having had to having had to go through this so I would say that I feel really grateful for my queerness I feel really grateful for my experience of coming out and I also think there's something really um wonderful wonderful about having a community and a culture that I belong to right people that understand on, a, on like a fundamental level what it, what it was like to be me growing up right I didn't have that when I was growing up and now I have it and now we can bond over our shared experiences of you know the things that we all you know you and I just talking about like clandestine crushes right like we can bond over that we can bond over kind of the shared experience which you know sometimes is a a torturous or a painful experience but we can look back on it with with nostalgia and and you know hopefully with a bit of heart so you know good and bad but I like to reflect on and try and emphasize the good I think coming into yourself and coming out is so important and um, there's so many like things to be uh, grateful for on the other end
1: you know no. there's a lot of positive aspects that can come from it as well and you mentioned there about having a gay community around you so do you feel you found a place within the gay community or your own tribe because I know I've sometimes myself the gay community can feel a little bit judgmental and unwelcoming so how have you navigated that whole world and have you found your place within it?
0: I think I tend to distinguish between a community and a scene. So I think often yeah. what, what we are sold as a community is actually a scene, you know, going out to a club, going out to a bar, these are scenes that, um, that, that change and that shift and that move and that have, you know, and they, that say to you that you have to subscribe to certain ways of being or behaviors or look a certain way to enter. And I tend not to search for belonging in those spaces because I don't feel like they really give me a good, um, you know, for me, historically, I've not felt that I always can belong in those spaces. For me, getting in touch with the community has been through, it's been through volunteering, it's been through, um, I think that you, I think that you get out of the community what you invest in it. So for me, you know, I work in the LGBT sector, I volunteer, I've really invested in relationships with, as in platonic relationships with other LGBT people, and I've really like given them my time and effort and really wanted to develop really meaningful relationships with people. And yeah. so I've kind of gone, I've just gone about it in a really different way. I've not um, I've not relied on the kind of, I guess, stock standard, like social spots. I've really gone in in a different way. I've kind of, I've gone in through activism and through campaigning and through, you know, pushing for, you know, a better community for everyone. And that's just been kind of my route, but I agree with you. I think it's one of the big tragedies of our community is that often so many people, come out and are desperate to belong they are confronted by a community which says to them okay well you're allowed to belong but you have to kind of tick these five boxes and that's not belonging you know belonging is being able to be accepted for who you are authentically not who you have to be you know do you know what i mean so it's just it's one of the big tragedies of our community that we do have that tendency but i think the more i i think there are people out there who are creating Spaces for different parts of the community. One of the things that I feel really passionate about, and I think are, is a really important initiative is, you know, creating club nights or celebrations or community spaces for particular minorities within our community. So for like queer people of color, for wow. trans people, for, you know, there's the there's, non-binary people, there's so many different groups within our community. And I think that we need to be able to create spaces for all of those different groups that everyone gets a chance to belong. It shouldn't be that, If you're a white, upside down triangle muscle man, then you're fine. But if you're anything other than that, then you don't get to go to the bars and have fun and enjoy yourself, right? That's just not, that's not a community. Um, A community is inclusive of everyone.
1: No, you made a really good point there of distinguishing between the scene and the community, actually.
0: I think it's something that we we often, I don't think it's something that we, I think people use the word community when they really mean the word scene. And I think that we need to unpack that a bit more because what it means is that people look for a community in the wrong places or in places that are only going to allow them to belong under certain um, circumstances. And that's just not fair. It's, it's, it's actually a really damaging thing to experience, you know? So we've just talked about how difficult it can be to come out and to to be authentic and to be yourself and to go from finally letting go of all that shame or still working through that shame and be like, okay, this is me. And then you're like, okay, well, now I get to go to the places that accept me and that I'm allowed to belong in. And, And then they turn around and they tell you that you can't
1: yeah I mean, it must be hard
0: right? oh, that's, yeah that's really hard for a lot of people and i don't think we talk enough about it really i don't think we have addressed it in the way that i'd like us to but there are certainly some people out there who are in their own small ways by creating these like specific spaces for specific groups are doing that and i think that's the future i mean it is the future because if you think about like the, the the nightlife scene certainly here in london gay clubs and gay bars are shutting down left right and center but yeah. Um. I should I should say queer queer bars like queer bars and queer clubs are showing down left, right, and centre. But queer nights, so you know, club nights that are for a specific group of people, are uh, I mean they're they're off the charts. Like they're, there's there's thousands of them, and I think that's what we're moving to. Right? It's more kind of specific celebrations for specific parts of the community, and I think that's probably healthier and better.
1: Another thing, another problem within the gay community, although a lot of the community probably don't want to admit to it or talk about it openly. There can be a lot of casual racism, particularly on the dating apps. So as a gay man of colour yourself, what are your thoughts on that?
0: I mean, yes, you're right. (laughs) There is an enormous amount of racism.
1: Is that okay to ask you? No, no,
0: totally, totally fine. Totally fine. I know you're absolutely right. There is an enormous amount of racism in the community and... I don't necessarily feel like there is like more racism than there is, you know, in the sort of straight cisgender heterosexual world. I think it's just that we have more opportunities to act on it.
1: Yeah, it just feels like gay people should be more understanding of it, like Uh people who've been discriminated against. It feels like the whole lesson has just been lost on so many of us.
0: But you know what, Johnny? I I felt that way for a long time, and I actually found it astounding when I first came out, and I was you know, taking part in the community and, and, you know, becoming an active member, quote unquote, (laughs) of the queer community, I was astounded by the amount of racism because I felt the same way. I was like, how on earth can you not port your, the empathy and compassion that you have for other gay men to another attribute that someone can't control that they're being prejudiced against, that they're, they're experiencing prejudice over, right? So I was like, you know, for me, as someone who grew up, dealing with racism and dealing with homophobia I was like duh these are the same thing they're just they're just you know variations of the same thing someone has is dealing with something that they can't control and people are telling them they're a bad person because of it but unfortunately people can't do that and this is something this has been a really big learning for me actually it was a really profound discovery for me to understand that actually people human beings aren't always capable of that and that you know you might be gay and you might have had to grapple with your gayness, and you might have had a lot of pain and a lot of trauma coming of that experience. But that doesn't mean that you can be compassionate. You know, you still grow up in a society which is which may be biased towards certain ethnic groups, and you 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 don't necessarily see the connection if it doesn't ha- if it hasn't impacted you um, personally, and that's quite an upsetting thing. I think it's quite distressing in some ways, and actually, you see this replicated within the community itself. You know, there are plenty of gay people out there who are transphobic. There are, you know cis gay people yeah. there are plenty of cis lesbian to a transphobic um and again it's like these are people who are a part of our community in a really important part of our community and I, and I have actually been at the forefront of pushing for our rights and yet there are people who can see a trans person you know as a gay as a cis gay person and say i don't get it i don't think it's right when yeah. It, it's so. It's actually so close to our experience in so many ways. Like it's, it's very different in many ways as well. But like this kind of grappling with gender and and defying the expectations of your gender is. I mean, there's so much many more similarities than there are differences. And yet you get so many cis, gay or bisexual people who just don't get it or who just can't accept it. So yeah. Going going back to racism, it is a problem. I think to be honest, our culture, specifically hookup culture tends to be a bit more of a breeding ground for racism. I think that being able to sort through people by race on something like Grindr or one of the many kind of similar apps, uh, people normalizing the language around, I'm not into Asians or I'm not into Blacks or whatever. Like this is the kind of stuff that I think, uh, I think it's that environment that allows racism to sometimes kind of come to the fore. Because my anecdotally, I don't, you know, you don't see think pieces about racism on Tinder in the same way. People aren't writing in their bios on Tinder sorry, not into Black people. Like, it's not seen as, it's seen as enormously taboo. um, Straight people I'm talking about, but somehow on Grindr, it's so much more commonplace. And I don't think that it means that there aren't racist people on Tinder. It's just that the environment of something like Tinder is less conducive to validating racial preferences. But to be honest, it's the kind of thing that I have probably talked about this a hundred million times, and you still see it time and time and time again. So I don't know beyond allowing people who are queer people of colour or, you know, gay men of colour or whatever to have these spaces where they can just belong and be accepted and feel like they're a part of a community. I, you know, I don't know what we do. It's a really, really tough conversation and I don't, I don't know... I think the solution is solving racism. <laughs> That's not a solution yeah. that I have, right?
1: All racism is disappointing, but it's especially disappointing just coming from within the gay community, I feel. But um, yeah. how also another problem... How do you feel about the representation of gay men of colour in the media and and the gay media also? Do you think, I don't think there's enough visibility at all.
0: No, I think so too. I think it's getting better. I think if I think about, you know, me growing up where seeing a gay person on TV was in and of itself quite surprising or almost non-existent or virtually non-existent. If I think about the representation that I see now, it's definitely getting better. I... I do feel though that there is you know, I one of the one of the shows that I have to say, I mean it, it has some problematic elements, but one of the shows that I really appreciate when it comes to visibility of queer men of colour is Drag Race because there's been okay. so many really wonderful queer men of colour who they're They're valued because they're talented, and they're valued because they're good. They're not treated as like props in a storyline. You know, they're the center of it. They're like this person is an incredible, talented, creative performer, and they're given you know time and space to breathe and to and to be human rather than to be kind of props in a story. But I think we're getting, but you know, we've got Pose, we had Moonlight. It's it's happening. I think that sort of film and TV. I think when it comes to our media, there's a lot more work to be done. I think the the sort of queer or gay media in this country certainly is extremely white.
1: But also, I think there's a um, have you been watching Ryan Murphy's Hollywood?
0: You know what, I haven't, but you know how I was telling you, there was a girl in my school who was on Home and Away when I was growing up.
1: She's oh, is that her? Yeah. Yeah, I googled her. Samara. And then I saw she was, um, she was, in Home. I can't remember her name, but yeah, she got, she's doing really well for herself.
0: She is, she really is.
1: Yeah, but there's a gay black man in in Hollywood. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think Archie. And so as someone who is an activist, you're working all the the time to improve LGBT people's lives. So what are your hopes for the LGBTQ community internationally and at home in the next few years? So that's a very broad question, isn't it? Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is because there's so many things that I could sort of zero in on because I think there's so many things that we need to improve on. I think for me, one of the things that I feel really strongly about, and that I'm going to mention this because it's kind of relevant to our conversation. and it's also something which, um, which ports internationally into, into lots of different international contexts is preserving and protecting queer people's mental health. So, you know, we've just talked about the experience of coming out, how difficult this can be, how traumatic it can be. And, you know, I think, we would probably consider ourselves fairly lucky to have had that experience in environments where you know homosexuality isn't criminalized or isn't so so socially taboo that you know when you if you are out you are genuinely um putting your own safety and the safety of your loved ones at risk and for the work that i do at kaleidoscope trust i see and i work with activists who are so courageous and and really risk a lot in order to try and, try and fight for their rights but that also comes at a massive expense and i think whether it be somewhere like uganda or nigeria or saudi arabia or belize or tonga or you know any of the, any of these countries where life is, is harder for queer people or whether it be somewhere like the uk or london where we often think of you know we think of london as this kind of you know metropolis where everyone's free to be whoever they want at the end of the day we still don't have services we know that LGBT people are disproportionately likely to suffer from poor mental health, but we don't yeah. have specialized services, even in the West or very few countries have specialized services or very few governments have invested in services or specialized care for LGBT people. So what we see is higher suicide rates, higher anxiety, higher depression, higher eating disorders, higher addiction disorders and no specialized care. And whether it be, you know, whether that's in the UK, whether that's abroad, that's something that I really feel strongly about. You know, you you shouldn't have to be, you know, I've been very lucky and I'm talking to you here right now because I was able to afford, whether it was through my parents when I was younger or now um, through my employment, uh, therapy, you know, with a gay therapist who I felt was able, who I felt I was able to be open and comfortable with and talk about elements of my life that i had always felt very ashamed of. And there are many, many people in this country, in Ireland and all across the world who don't have that privilege. And I don't feel like you should have to be able to be earning a certain amount of money to be able to come to terms with your authentic self. I think it's something that we should be able to extend to all LGBT people. And we're just not in a position for that to happen at the moment. And so a lot of my work is trying to figure out ways to slowly but surely make that more of a reality, at least in this country. And then you know, hopefully at some point across the world.
1: No, but it is, as you mentioned there, it is such a huge problem. I think the waiting list on the NHS is five to six months to see a counsellor. So if you're in a very, very bad way.
0: Yeah, you're, you're in a. Yeah, and, and even then, I mean, you may wait for six or seven months or however long to get a counsellor, and then you may get a counsellor who's homophobic. You know, you may get a counsellor yeah. who. I had a friend who was grappling with their gender um, and was sort of trying to come to terms with being non binary or perhaps being. Um, Uh, sort of binary trans and they weren't sure and they went to a therapist uh, on the nhs after a long long waiting time and the therapist said to them uh are you sure this isn't about your childhood because i don't think this gender stuff is really going to go anywhere i don't think there's any kind of merit to discussing this and that was the whole reason they'd gone to the counts in the first place right you get people who just aren't trained on the particularities of of gender and sexuality for for people and so it's even after all that waiting, you might find someone who and also people have, you know, people, there are still plenty of people out there who don't agree with, <laughs> with people being gay or people being trans or whatever. So, yes, yeah. um, it can be really tough for a lot of people.
1: I think that's a really great point that you would make and I, uh, that you made there. And it's something that I wished I'd realised or learned when I was much younger, because I think going to an LGBTQ counsellor can make such a huge difference in Massively. the counseling process and the effectiveness Massively.
0: yeah totally 100 percent. and i think not everyone wants it like some people don't want a queer or gay or trans therapist but for me i think yeah. it was so comforting to have someone to talk to who i knew on some level understood my lived experience and i didn't have to explain things to yeah. i didn't have to explain the trauma of the closet because he knew because he'd been through it himself
1: Yeah, because that advice seems quite obvious when you say it, but it doesn't really seem to be out there in the public domain. It's like obviously because psychology is just such a broad area and just trying to go and talk to somebody who specialises within the area that you most want to deal with is so, so important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you, Johnny, it baffles my mind that this is not something that we talk more about because it's not only—it's actually marginalised people in general. So you know, Black, Asian, minority ethnic people are also disproportionately likely to suffer from poor mental health, as are people with yeah. disabilities and as are people who are LGBT plus. But we don't seem to, despite knowing all of this, we haven't seemed to catch up yet, right, to a society in which you know, if there was a vaccine for uh, an illness that affected a certain part of the population much worse than others, you would make sure that that vaccine was available to those people first because they're in the most vulnerable categories. But when it comes to mental health, despite us knowing that marginalized people are more likely to suffer from poor mental health, we don't create services which are catered to them. We just say, oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, there's, there hasn't been yeah. an intervention there which has been which has been meaningful, and so I think that's what we're pushing the government to do, and that's and you know also trying to bolster services that currently do exist that do cater towards those groups. I think th- this is important, an important thing for us to kind of fight for in a longer term.
1: Alex, you're doing such incredible, incredible work. So keep it up. Thank you so much for your time today. It really was a pleasure chatting to you.
0: Thanks, Johnny. It was a real pleasure chatting to you too. Across the sea, across the Irish. What's, yes. what's the name of the water between the UK? And the, I don't even know.
1: The Irish the Sea. Irish Sea. I was like, God, yes. do I know? It's the Irish Sea. Yes. <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was reading your writing last night. It's incredible. I was reading it and I was actually, I'm not being gushy or bullshitty or anything. I was so jealous. It was so good. You, you know, it's, um, <laughs> keep up all your writing as well. It, oh. It's brilliant.
0: Thanks, Johnny. That's so kind of you.
1: And yeah, best of luck with all of your activism and all of your future endeavours, Alex. Thanks. You too, Johnny. And all the best. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Alex.